Letter four of the Love Letters of Abelard and Eloise, translated by Anonymous, edited by Israel Gallants and Honor Morton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Koskinen. The Love Letters of Abelard and Eloise. Letter four. Eloise to Abelard. To Abelard, her well-beloved in Christ Jesus, from Eloise, his well-beloved in the same Christ Jesus. I read the letter I received from you with great impatience. In spite of all my misfortunes, I hoped to find nothing in it besides arguments of comfort. But how ingenuous are lovers in tormenting themselves! judge of the exquisite sensibility and force of my love by that which causes the grief of my soul. I was disturbed at the superscription of your letter. Why did you place the name of Eloise before that of Abelard? What means this cruel and unjust distinction? It was your name only, the name of a father and a husband, which my eager eyes sought for. I did not look for my own, which I would, if possible, forget, for it is the cause of all your misfortunes. The rules of decorum, and your position as master and director over me, opposed that ceremony in addressing me, and love commanded you to banish it. Alas, you know all this but too well. Did you address me thus before cruel fortune had ruined my happiness? I see your heart has forsaken me, and you have made greater advances in the way of devotion than I could wish. Alas, I am too weak to follow you. Condescend at least to stay for me, and animate me with your advice. Can you have the cruelty to abandon me? The fear of this stabs my heart. The fearful presages you make at the end of your letter, those terrible images you draw of your death, quite distract me. Cruel Abelard, you ought to have stopped my tears, and you make them flow. You ought to have quelled the turmoil of my heart, and you throw me into greater disorder. You desire that after your death I should take care of your ashes and pay them the last duties. Alas, in what temper did you conceive these mournful ideas, and how could you describe them to me? Did not the dread of causing my immediate death make the pen drop from your hand? You did not reflect, I suppose, upon all those torments to which you were going to deliver me. Heaven, severe as it has been to me, is not so insensible as to permit me to live one moment after you. Life without Abelard were an insupportable punishment and death a most exquisite happiness, if by that means I could be united to him. If heaven but hearken to my continual cry, your days will be prolonged, and you will bury me. Is it not your part to prepare me by powerful exhortation against that great crisis which shakes the most resolute and stable minds? Is it not your part to receive my last sighs, superintend my funeral, and give an account of my acts and my faith. Who but you can recommend us worthily to God, and by the fervor and merit of your prayers, conduct those souls to him 
which you have joined to his worship by solemn vows. We expect those pious offices from your paternal charity. After this you will be free from those disquietudes which now molest you, and you will quit life with ease whenever it shall please God to call you away. You may follow us content with what you have done, and in a full assurance of our happiness. But till then write me no more such terrible things, for we are already sufficiently miserable, nor need to have our sorrows aggravated. Our life here is but a languishing death. Would you hasten it? Our present disgraces are sufficient to employ our thoughts continually. And shall we seek in the future new reasons for fear? How void of reason are men, said Seneca, to make distant evils present by reflections, and to take pains before death to lose all the joys of life. When you have finished your course here below, you said that it is your desire that your body be borne to the house of the paraclete, to the intent that being always before my eyes you may be ever present in my mind. Can you think that the traces you have drawn on my heart can ever be worn out, or that any length of time can obliterate the memory we hold here of your benefits? And what time shall I find for those prayers you speak of? Alas, I shall then be filled with other cares, for so heavy a misfortune would leave me no moment's quiet. Can my feeble reason resist such powerful assaults? When I am distracted and raving, if I dare say it, even against heaven itself, I shall not soften it by my cries, but rather provoke it by my reproaches. How should I pray, or how bear up against my grief? I should be more eager to follow you than to pay you the sad ceremonies of a funeral. It is for you, for Abelard, that I have resolved to live, and if you are ravished from me I can make no use of my miserable days. Alas, what lamentations should I make if heaven, by a cruel pity, preserved me for that moment? When I but think of this last separation, I feel all the pangs of death. What should I be then, if I should see this dreadful hour? Forbear, therefore, to infuse into my mind such mournful thoughts, if not for love, at least for pity. You desire me to give myself up to my duty, and to be holy gods to whom I am consecrated. How can I do that? when you frighten me with apprehensions that continually possess my mind both night and day, when an evil threatens us, and it is impossible to ward it off, why do we give up ourselves to the unprofitable fear of it, which is yet even more tormenting than the evil itself? What have I hoped for after the loss of you? What can confine me to earth, when death shall have taken away from me all that was dear on it. I have renounced with difficulty all the charms of life, preserving only my love, and the secret pleasure of thinking incessantly of you, and hearing that you live. And yet, alas, you do not live for me, and dare not flatter myself even with the hope that I shall ever see you again. This is the greatest of my afflictions.
Merciless fortune, hadst thou not persecuted me enough? Thou dost not give me any respite. Thou hast exhausted all thy vengeance upon me, and reserved nothing whereby thou mayest appear terrible to others. Thou hast wearied thyself in tormenting me, and others have nothing to fear from thy anger. But what use to longer arm thyself against me? The wounds I have already received leave no room for others, unless thou desirest to kill me. Or dost thou fear, amidst the numerous torments heaped on me, dost thou fear that such a final stroke would deliver me from all other ills? Therefore thou preservest me from death in order to make me die daily. Dear Abelard, pity my despair. Was ever any being so miserable? The higher you raised me above other women, who envied me your love, the more sensible am I now of the loss of your heart. I was exalted to the top of happiness, only that I might have the more terrible fall. Nothing could be compared to my pleasures, and now nothing can equal my misery. My joys once raised the envy of my rivals. My present wretchedness calls forth the compassion of all that see me. My fortune has been always in extremes. She has loaded me with the greatest favors, and then heaped me with the greatest afflictions. Ingenuous in tormenting me, she has made the memory of the joys I have lost an inexhaustible spring of tears. Love, which being posset was her most delightful gift, on being taken away is an untold sorrow. In short, her malice has entirely succeeded, and I find my present afflictions proportionately bitter, as the transports which charmed me were sweet. But what aggravates my sufferings yet more is, that we began to be miserable at a time when we seemed the least to deserve it. While we gave ourselves up to the enjoyment of a guilty love, nothing opposed our pleasures. But scarcely had we retrenched our passion, and taken refuge in matrimony, than the wrath of heaven fell on us with all its weight. And how barbarous was your punishment! Ah, what right had a cruel uncle over us! We were joined to each other even before the altar, and this should have protected us from the rage of our enemies. Besides, we were separated. You were busy with your lectures, and instructed a learned audience in mysteries which the greatest geniuses before you could not penetrate, and I, in obedience to you, retired to a cloister. I there spent whole days in thinking of you, and sometimes meditating on holy lessons, to which I endeavored to apply myself. At this very juncture punishment fell upon us, and you, who were least guilty, became the object of the whole vengeance of a barbarous man. But why should I rave at Fulbert? I, wretched I, have ruined you, and have been the cause of all your misfortunes. How dangerous it is for a great man to suffer himself to be moved by our sex! He ought from his infancy to be inured to insensibility of heart against all our charms. Hearken, my son, 
said formerly the wisest of men. Attend, and keep my instructions. If a beautiful woman by her looks endeavor to entice thee, permit not thyself to be overcome by a corrupt inclination. Reject the poison she offers, and follow not the paths she directs. Her house is the gate of destruction and death. I have long examined things, and have found that death is less dangerous than beauty. It is the shipwreck of liberty, a fatal snare, from which it is impossible ever to get free. It was a woman who threw down the first man from the glorious position in which heaven had placed him. She, who was created to partake of his happiness, was the sole cause of his ruin. How bright had been the glory of Samson, if his heart had been proof against the charms of Delilah, as against the weapons of the Philistines. A woman disarmed and betrayed he who had been a conqueror of armies. He saw himself delivered into the hands of his enemies. He was deprived of his eyes, those inlets of love into the soul. Distracted and despairing he died, without any consolation save that of including his enemies in his ruin. Solomon, that he might please women, forsook pleasing God, that king whose wisdom princes came from all parts to admire, he whom God had chosen to build the temple, abandoned the worship of the very altars he had raised, and proceeded to such a pitch of folly as even to burn incense to idols. Job had no enemy more cruel than his wife. What temptations did he not bear? The evil spirit, who had declared himself his persecutor, employed a woman as an instrument to shake his constancy. And the same evil spirit made Eloise an instrument to ruin Abelard. All the poor comfort I have is that I am not the voluntary cause of your misfortunes. I have not betrayed you, but my constancy and love have been destructive to you. If I have committed a crime in loving you so constantly, I cannot repent it. I have endeavored to please you even at the expense of my virtue, and therefore deserve the pains I feel. As soon as I was persuaded of your love, I delayed scarce a moment in yielding to your protestations. To be beloved by Abelard was in my esteem so great a glory, and I so impatiently desired it, not to believe in it immediately. I aimed at nothing but convincing you of my utmost passion. I made no use of those defences of disdain and honour, those enemies of pleasure, which tyrannize over our sex made in me but a weak and unprofitable resistance. I sacrificed all to my love, and I forced my duty to give place to the ambition of making happy the most famous and learned person of the age. If any consideration had been able to stop me, it would have been without doubt my love. I feared, lest having nothing further to offer you, your passion might become languid, and you might seek for new pleasures in another conquest. But it was easy for you to cure me of a suspicion so opposite to my own inclination. I ought to have foreseen other more certain evils. 
and to have considered that the idea of lost enjoyments would be the trouble of my whole life. How happy should I be could I wash out with my tears the memory of those pleasures which I yet think of with delight. At least I will try, by strong endeavor, to smother in my heart those desires to which the frailty of my nature gives birth. I will exercise on myself such torments as those you have to suffer from the rage of your enemies. I will endeavor by this means to satisfy you at least, if I cannot appease an angry God. For to show you to what a deplorable condition I am reduced, and how far my repentance is from being complete, I dare even accuse heaven at this moment of cruelty for delivering you over to the snares prepared for you. My repinings can only kindle divine wrath, when I should be seeking for mercy. In order to expiate a crime, it is not sufficient to bear the punishment. Whatever we suffer is of no avail, if the passion still continues, and the heart is filled with the same desire. It is an easy matter to confess a weakness, and inflict on ourselves some punishment. But it needs perfect power over our nature to extinguish the memory of pleasures, which by a loved habitude have gained possession of our minds. How many persons do we see who make an outward confession of their faults, yet, far from being in distress about them, take a new pleasure in relating them? Contrition of the heart ought to accompany the confession of the mouth, yet this very rarely happens. I, who have experienced so many pleasures in loving you, feel, in spite of myself, that I cannot repent them, nor forbear through memory to enjoy them over again. Whatever efforts I use, on whatever side I turn, the sweet thought still pursues me, and every object brings to my mind what it is my duty to forget. During the quiet night, when my heart ought to be still in that sleep which suspends the greatest cares, I cannot avoid the illusions of my heart. I dream I am still with my dear Abelard. I see him. I speak to him and hear him answer. Charmed with each other, we forsake our studies and give ourselves up to love. Sometimes, too, I seem to struggle with your enemies. I oppose their fury. I break into piteous cries. And in a moment I awake in tears. Even into holy places before the altar I carry the memory of our love. And far from lamenting for having been seduced by pleasures, I sigh for having lost them. I remember, for nothing is forgot by lovers, the time and place in which you first declared your passion, and swore you would love me till death. Your words, your oaths, are deeply graven in my heart. My stammering speech betrays to all the disorder of my mind. My sighs discover me, and your name is ever on my lips. O oh Lord, when I am thus afflicted, why dost not thou pity my weakness? and strengthen me with thy grace. You are happy, Abelard, in that grace is given you, and your misfortune has been the occasion of your finding rest. 
the punishment of your body has cured the deadly wounds of your soul. The tempest has driven you into the haven. God, who seemed to deal heavily with you, sought only to help you. He was a father chastising, and not an enemy revenging. A wise physician, putting you to some pain, in order to preserve your life. I am a thousand times more to be pitied than you, for I have still a thousand passions to fight. I must resist those fires which love kindles in a young heart. Our sex is nothing but weakness, and I have the greater difficulty in defending myself, because the enemy that attacks me pleases me. I dote on the danger which threatens. How then can I avoid yielding? In the midst of these struggles I try at least to conceal my weakness from those you have entrusted to my care. All who are about me admire my virtue, but could their eyes penetrate into my heart, what would they not discover? My passions there are in rebellion. I preside over others, but cannot rule myself. I have a false covering and this seeming virtue is a real vice. Men judge me praiseworthy, but I am guilty before God. From his all-seeing eye nothing is hid, and he views through all their windings the secrets of the heart. I cannot escape his discovery, and yet it means great effort to me merely to maintain this appearance of virtue. So surely this troublesome hypocrisy is in some sort commendable. I give no scandal to the world which is so easy to take bad impressions. I do not shake the virtue of those feeble ones who are under my rule. With my heart, full of the love of man, I teach them at least to love only God. Charmed with the pomp of worldly pleasures, I endeavor to show them that they are all vanity and deceit. I have just strength enough to conceal from them my longings, and I look upon that as a great effect of grace. If it is not enough to make me embrace virtue, tis enough to keep me from committing sin. And yet it is in vain to try and separate these two things. They must be guilty who are not righteous, and they depart from virtue who delay to approach it. Besides, we ought to have no other motive than the love of God. Alas, what can I then hope for? I own, to my confusion, I fear more to offend a man than to provoke God, and I study less to please him than to please you. Yes, it was your command only— and not a sincere vocation, which sent me into these cloisters. I sought to give you ease, and not to sanctify myself. How unhappy am I! I tear myself from all that pleases me. I bury myself alive. I exercise myself with the most rigid fastings, and all those severities the cruel laws impose on us. I feed myself with tears and sorrows, and notwithstanding this I merit nothing by my penance. My false piety has long deceived you as well as others. You have thought me at peace, 
when I was more disturbed than ever. You persuaded yourself I was wholly devoted to my duty, yet I had no business but love. Under this mistake you desire my prayers. Alas! I need yours. Do not presume upon my virtue and my care. I am wavering. Fix me by your advice. I am feeble. Sustain and guide me by your counsel. What occasion had you to praise me? Praise is often hurtful for those on whom it is bestowed. A secret vanity springs up in the heart, blinds us, and conceals from us the wounds that are half healed. A seducer flatters us, and at the same time destroys us. A sincere friend disguises nothing from us, and far from passing a light hand over the wound, makes us feel it the more intensely by applying remedies. Why do you not deal after this manner with me? Will you be esteemed a base, dangerous flatterer? Or if you chance to see anything commendable in me, have you no fear that vanity, which is so natural to all women, should quite efface it? But let us not judge of virtue by outward appearances. For then the reprobate, as well as the elect, may lay claim to it. An artful impostor may by his address gain more admiration than is given to the zeal of a saint. The heart of man is a labyrinth whose windings are very difficult to discover. The praises you give me are the more dangerous because I love the person who bestows them. The more I desire to please you, the readier am I to believe the merit you attribute to me. Ah, think rather how to nerve my weakness by wholesome remonstrances. Be rather fearful than confident of my salvation. Say our virtue is founded upon weakness, and that they only will be crowned who have fought with the greatest difficulties. But I seek not the crown which is the reward of victory. I am content if I can avoid danger. It is easier to keep out of the way than to win a battle. There are several degrees in glory, and I am not ambitious of the highest. I leave them to those of greater courage, who have often been victorious. I seek not to conquer, for fear I should be overcome. Happiness enough for me to escape shipwreck, and at last reach port. Heaven commands me to renounce my fatal passion for you, but, oh, my heart will never be able to consent to it. Adieu. End of Letter 4